Okay. Genesis 29, 1 to 20. Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And behold, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came about when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went up and rolled a stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to him, said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what are your wages? What shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're thankful that you have given us this time to be in your word and to study it. We ask that you will be with us, that we might handle it accurately, that we might please you and glorify you by what we learn. Lord, we do know that we ought not only to understand and know what is here, but live accordingly. Sanctify us, Lord, in the truth, because your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen. In this chapter, chapter 29, at the beginning of the chapter, Jacob continues his journey. In the previous one, in the previous chapter, Jacob was sent away from Isaac and Rebekah, his parents. And on the way, he sees a dream, the dream of the ladder and the angels of God going up and down the ladder. And the Lord on the top of the ladder And the Lord promises to be with him and fulfill the promises that were first announced to Abraham, then to Isaac, now also to Jacob, that he would receive this spiritual blessing and the everlasting covenant 
the covenant which includes the coming of Christ. This is what he has heard and experienced in the previous chapter. Well, in chapter 29, he proceeds on his journey. And he's on his journey to go to northern Mesopotamia, from the land of Canaan and the southern part, from Beersheba to the northern part of Mesopotamia, in the, to the city of Haran, and there, that would be east of the Euphrates River, and beyond Damascus, beyond uh, or east of Carchemish on the, uh, on, on the Euphrates River, but east of that, toward about midpoint, or about a third of the way from the Euphrates to the Tigris, there in northern Mesopotamia. This is his journey, and this journey is a 400-mile journey. 400-mile journey without vehicles, without airplanes, without trains, right? This is a 400-mile journey that Jacob is undertaking. And at the beginning of the chapter, if you have a footnote, your Bible may say, he lifted up his feet. He lifted up his feet. The, the translation NASB says, went on his journey. Now, typically, this is the only place where the feet are lifted up like this. But typically when a, a part of the body is mentioned, it's emphasizing the action of that part of the body in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament. So why would he, or why would the scripture emphasize the action of his feet? I think because in the previous chapter, he has been given encouragement. He ha- believes the promise of God, that God is with him, will be with him on his journey and make his journey successful and even return him to the land of Canaan. He has faith in this and he diligently believes it. So he eagerly takes on the journey, even though this journey is a long one, 400 miles. Then in verse one, he comes to the land of the sons of the east. The sons of the east, this phrase is used in other places in scripture, such as in Judges 6, verse 3 and 33. Judges 6, 3 and 33. In that chapter, they are in cahoots or allies with the Midianites and the Amalekites who live south of the land of Canaan or south of the land of Israel. The sons of the east are known as sons of the east because they are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And that could be on the southeastern side, directly the east side, or even in the northeast side. Evidence of the northeast side is in Genesis 11, verse 2, because the people, after the flood, they went from Ararat, which was northwest or north of the land of Canaan, and they went eastward into the land of Shinar, which would be Mesopotamia and southern Mesopotamia. So these sons of the east are also those from the northeast, the east, and even the southeast part uh, in proximity toward uh, uh, proximity of the land of Canaan. Furthermore, we find in uh, Job chapter 1, Job 1 verse 3, that Job lived in the southeast part uh, from the land of Canaan or Israel. He lived on the southeast side And he resided there, and he was a prominent man there, a wealthy man and well-known man there. And it says that he was famous or one of the greatest men of all the sons of the East. So according to context, we should take this phrase, the sons of the East, whether Northeast, East, or Southeast. 
I say this because it's easy for interpreters to misunderstand this and to accuse the Bible of not knowing what it's talking about geographically. When the Bible is merely talking about the various peoples east of, whether north, um, directly east, or southeast of the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. That's where he went. Verse 2, And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. Um, Now, when he approaches the city of Haran, the area around it was a plain or was a field. That's what Padan Aram means. That region up in the north and the northeast was known as Padan Aram. That's where he was supposed to go from chapter 28. Chapter 28 actually mentions it. 28.2 Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. That's where he goes, and he reaches this field near Haran, but not necessarily are all the people who come to this well from that one particular city. So there he sees three flocks of sheep lying there near the well, and yet they are not being watered. They're not being watered yet, verse 2. One reason is, Now, the stone on the mouth of the well was large. If there was a well that was a wide well and a well that was used for watering, in in the desert-like area or in places where the wind would blow and the sands would blow, to protect the well from being dirty and polluted by the elements, there would be a flat stone placed over it, a flat stone, a heavy stone, a flat one, that would take um, some effort to remove and it would be by agreement that the locals would wait for one another to come there so that that heavy stone, large stone, would be removed at one time, at certain times, when all of the shepherds with their flocks came to meet there. This is presumably the custom and what is happening here. Verse Three, when all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. There we have the custom. Verse 3 explains it, that this is the way it would take place so that we, they all would in one time and typically two times a day have a certain meeting time when they would all gather and do this to water their sheep and then go away after they replaced the stone on the mouth of the well. Verse 4, Jacob appears at that time. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Now, that was a neighboring, a nearby city, but not necessarily the only place. And he's confirming with this question about where they are from. Now, verse 4 and other places in Genesis can be a source of confusion because... The name in English, Haran, it is the same as the name of two patriarchs, as it appears in English. But here we are talking about uh, the name of a city, a geographical name. This is what we mean here. And in the original language, the H was a hard H or a guttural H. It would be pronounced more distinctly 
like uh, like that or in that way, Haran. But the personal name, the the name of two patriarchs, is with the soft H. It would be like um, head or hand, a soft H in English. English doesn't have the hard H, but it has the soft. So here they are asking about the place, not the person, but the place. And in this case, it's not named after the persons that have the name that sounds similar. Now, while we're talking about this, keep your place here and turn to chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And here, to avoid this confusion, let's explain who these individuals are. And these names will come up later. Even the name of uh, Nahor will be significant later. In chapter 11, let's begin at verse 22. This section of chapter 11 is a genealogy going from the son of Noah, Shem, to Abraham. This is the purpose or one of the main purposes of this genealogy. After the flood, tracing the genealogy from Noah to Shem to Abraham. That's the purpose from the beginning of it until the end of it. We pick it up in the middle. In verse 22, it says, And Sarug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. There is Nahor, the, the first um, case of this name, uh, Nahor. Then verse 24, And Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now this Haran is the soft H Haran, like head or hand in English. Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Notice there in 27. Here we can have some confusion. There is a Nahor who in 22 to 23 is the son of Serug. But now over here in verse 27, 26 and 27, we have another Nahor who is the son of Terah. Okay, another one who is the son of Terah. And then we have Haran in 11, 26 and 27, who is the father of Lot. This is the soft H Haran, father of Lot. Verse 28, And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. That means one of Abram's brothers died in Ur, and he did not... Therefore, leave Ur with Abraham and Nahor. We're going to see that Nahor also left Ur. Verse 29, And Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran, which is a hard H. 
They went as far as Haran. This is the same Haran we're talking about in Genesis 29, where Jacob goes to find a wife. And they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran, that place where Jacob goes. We will see that Nahor and um, Abraham, the two brothers, and Terah, their father, lived there in Haran, that place, for a few years, about five years, likely. And then after Terah died, then Abraham, not Nahor, his brother, but Abraham migrated from Haran to Canaan. That's where he lives most of his life. Abraham lives most of his life there. So what have we seen here? We've seen Abraham, Nahor, and Haran are all brothers. Haran died in Ur. Lot, his son, went with Abraham, migrated out of Ur to Haran and then Canaan. But Nahor, we're going to see, he remained in Haran. Genesis 24, Genesis 24, verse 10. Genesis 24, 10. It says, When Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, it says in 24, 10, Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's house in his hand, And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. It says, to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, which city is Haran? The the city where now Jacob goes to find a wife. The connection between Nahor and Haran is made evident in 29, verse 5, in the next verse. Genesis 29, 5. And he, Jacob, said to them, the shepherds, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Now, why would he make that connection with the city of Haran with Nahor? Because that's where Nahor resided, and he became a prominent man there, and his family and relatives, descendants, became prominent there. And so... Haran was known as the city of Nahor. Okay? That's how we make the connection between Nahor and the city Haran. Um, Also, a point to make in verse 5 is Laban is called the son of Nahor. Not that he was the literal immediate son of Nahor. Actually, he was the grandson of Nahor. Bethuel was the father of Laban. Bethuel was the father of Laban. And this we find from Genesis 22, 20. Genesis 22, 20, it says, Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor. And who are the children? Buz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, and Hesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. There we have Bethuel. And there it says that 
He became the father of Rebekah. Well, who else did he become the father of? Look at Genesis 24. Genesis 24, 29. 24, 29. Now, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. So, Bethuel fathers Rebekah, and Bethuel also fathers Laban, the brother of Rebekah. So this is the connection by the time we come to Genesis 29, 5. 29, 5. Laban's sister was Rebekah, and this is why we read earlier that he should go, Jacob should go to Bethuel, your mother's father. So the mother of, uh, the father of Rebekah was Bethuel, Genesis 28, 2. The brother of Rebekah was Laban. And Laban is called Laban, the son of Nahor, meaning the grandson of Nahor, which is not unusual for that to happen. Uh, The most obvious example is that Jesus Christ is called the son of David, even though he has a thousand years between himself and David with many ancestors between. He's known as the son of David. And that's the sense in which it is mentioned here. Okay, then he says in, oh, before we go on, before we go on, there's another important point we need to make. Another very important point. This has come up once or twice before in previous chapters of Genesis. I did some more study on this subject. The question is, remember in the case of Genesis 24, Abraham did not want Isaac to marry a local Canaanitess. Right. And also in this case, Isaac and Rebekah do not want Jacob to marry a local Canaanitess. That's why Jacob is sent back to Haran. And it has nothing to do with the race of the women. It has to do with the idolatry and the immorality of the women all around in the land of Canaan. It has to do with their idolatry and their immorality. Well, if that is the case then does that not mean that Nahor, who remained in Haran, that he maintained, or some of his relatives maintained the faith that Terah and Abraham believed? Does that not assume it? And so the question came up uh, before, and we raise it again because it is necessary to raise again. Now, I had asserted that based on Genesis 31, 53, Genesis 31, 53, that Nahor was also a believer. That Abraham, of course, is, but Nahor was also a believer. And this is why Abraham went to the city of Nahor. And this is also now why Jacob goes to the city of Nahor to find among their relatives a believer. It wasn't that they just wanted to marry a relative. It was that they wanted to marry a believing relative. And the believing relative part is what I want to address. Firstly, in Genesis 31, 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, may he judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. 
the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Here, this one God is called upon. Now, in our English Bibles, in the New American Standard Bible, it clearly has a capital G for the God of Nahor. Correct? A capital G. And the more uh, research that I did was to find about 37 translations. I checked 37 translations. And there's a website that you can do this easily. Just click the, put put a verse in there and it'll pop up uh, 30 or, or more translations. And if I counted correctly, out of the 37 translations, only two of them put the G of Nahor as a small g. So about 35 of those translations does it just like the New American Standard with a capital G for God of Nahor. And why would the translators put a big G or a small g there? A big G because it's the true God, the God of Abraham. A small g because the translators think that the pagan God of Nahor is being called upon, is being invoked. So 30, at least 35 translations believe we're talking about the true God in Genesis 31:53, which would mean they believe Nahor worshiped the true God. Right? That's what I found, and I'll show within the text of Genesis 29 and 30 some more evidence of that. I think it's evident based on what Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah want for their sons, sending them back to Haran, the city of Nahor. I think it's also evident from Genesis 31, 53. I will also show from chapters 29 and 30 that there is indication that they knew of the God of Abraham and they worshiped the God of Abraham. Okay? But before I do that, I also checked six commentators, at least six commentators, and all of them think that the God of Nahor was a pagan god. Even though the commentators had in their translation a, a capital G, they still believed in their commentary section that he was worshiping, or, or Nahor worshiped the pagan gods, not the true God, the God of Abraham. But they don't explain why they do so. They don't explain why the translation is one way and why they are commentating contrary to the translation. They just comment that they think Nahor worshiped a pagan god. But let's go back to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. And let's pick it up at verse 31. 29, 31. By this point, Jacob is married. He's married to Leah and Rachel. In 31, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. It's quoting Leah's words. And it says, because the Lord has seen my affliction. She doesn't say God in a generic way, which might be a pagan God. But she actually uses the name of the Lord there in verse 32. Furthermore, in verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise 
the Lord. Praise the Lord means hallelujah. This time I will praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So she's talking about the God of Abraham there. Well, how does she learn about the God of Abraham? One might argue maybe it was Jacob who preached to Leah and Rachel and others, and that's how they converted. It might be that they converted in the last seven years because it took seven years of Jacob being there for him to marry Leah and Rachel. Maybe that's the case, but maybe that's not the case. Maybe they were believers before that. Also, in chapter 30, in chapter 30, Rachel, she was barren, correct? But when she conceives Joseph, it says in chapter 30, verse 24, and she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, may the Lord give me another son. There too, she invokes the name of the Lord. Not God generally, but the Lord specifically, the true God, the God of Abraham. Okay, for these reasons, I think that there was a remnant of faith there in the city of Nahor, because of Nahor, who had converted and left Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, then, let's return, and we pick it up at verse 6. Genesis 29, 6. 29, 6. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Well, let's pause there. Jacob encourages the shepherds to water their sheep. It doesn't say why. Presumably, it's the heat of the day and he's concerned about why they're waiting, concerned for them, concerned for their flocks. Perhaps also, he wants to be alone because they announce in verse 6, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. So they know she is imminently arriving. They know that and that's why they announce it. But they emphasize the fact that we can't do it until all the flocks are here. Then we will do it. So we have to wait for her before we can do so. And um, then she arrives while they are still conversing. The plan to be separate from her doesn't work out. However, when she does come, verse 10, and it came out when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, he is, Jacob is a stranger, basically, to all of them, right? In terms of personal acquaintance, he's a stranger to all of them. In terms of relations, he's not a complete stranger because of the connection to Rebekah and Laban, right? But in his diligence, he helps out. He shows that he's kind and he's uh, gracious. He's mindful of the need and he helps them water the flock. Does this not remind us of Genesis 24? Where also 
the servant of Abraham, he probably knew he would find people or women coming to the well because that would be their custom to come once, at least once a day, if not twice a day, to draw water and take it back to their homes. And in the same way, Jacob probably assumed the same, that that would be a good place to go and meet somebody. Well, even Christ knew that because in John chapter 4, he went to the well of, of the Samaritans, Jacob's well, and there he met a woman, right? So this was typical, not, not uh, strange to be able to find people, especially women, there. And then you could inquire about this or that from those who had gathered. But Jacob, just like Rebecca did, Rebecca, his own mother, what did she do to the servant of Abraham and for his 10 camels? He asked for some water and she said, sure, here's some. And she also drew water enough for 10 camels. And they, have, they hold 20 to 30 gallons if they are empty, each camel. So she had to draw a lot of water to be able to service and water all those camels. Well, in the same way, Jacob would have had to do the same. It shows something of his character to be willing to do so. Now, somebody might say, if they have a malicious and suspicious view of Jacob, might say, well, he's just trying to get married. Well, at least he's doing that, right? At least he's doing that, even if he is trying to get married. At least he's doing something. He's not a bum, and he's not saying, oh, okay, now she's here. Why don't you guys do what you need to do? Take the stone off the, the mouth of the well and water your flock. I, I need to go talk to Rachel. He doesn't do anything like that. His actions are those of uh, diligence and concern. Well, after he does so, apparently, it says, verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel, lifted his voice and wept, and Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, which is also what uh, Rebekah did in 24. In chapter 24, once Rebekah knew who the servant was, the servant of Abraham, he related it at the well. Then she also runs back home to tell her father. And in the same way, Rachel does the same once she knows. Verse 13. So it came about when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Now, Laban, in a, in a proper way, in a prop, uh, good way, um, he goes and runs to meet Jacob coming on his way to Laban's house. And the same thing. They embrace each other. They kiss each other. And Jacob relates everything that has been going on. Now, when it says all these things, it doesn't tell us technically, specifically, every single thing. And so I don't think we should read too much into this. He told him a sufficient number of things as to why he was there. But we don't know if he told him all the history of what has been happening with the relatives in a foreign land. Verse 14, Laban's answer, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. That reminds us of Genesis 2.23. In Genesis 2.23, that's what Adam said of Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It said there, and, and this is something of a statement to say, yes, you are my relative. Just like as Eve was a relative of Adam, so those in near relation will use this expression. It's used here and it's also used 
in Judges chapter 9, verse 2. Judges 9, verse 2. Yes, because you are of a relation to me, near relation, I ought to have a different perspective of you than I do of the stranger, somebody outside. Which is right and typical. Everybody should have that perspective. Correct? We should have our first concern for our spouses and our children, and then we go beyond that to others. Um, Others among the relatives and others in the church, others in the community. That's the way it should be. And Laban does the same. And I don't think that this is a negative thing. I think it's a positive thing. Now, he's going to exploit this, but generally speaking, we should first have concern for ourselves and then those outside. Um, I say this because sometimes in uh, super spiritual Christianity, people will say, well, I'm living this way. We are living in misery and poverty and uncertainty day by day because we give 50% or we give 90% of our money to strangers and missionaries and poor people all around the world. Some people like to boast that way and think that way, but that's not the right way. We have to first have concern for those who are near us, providing their food and covering, and with these we shall be content. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. Yes, first with those who are near us, and, and then in the church, and then those on the outside, as the Lord provides for us. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what, are your wage, what shall your wages be? Now, he says this after Jacob has stayed there a month. And in this month, Jacob telling him that I'm going to stay here for some time, for a few years, that he's noticed that Jacob is industrious. He noticed that he's responsible. He notices something about his character, but he doesn't want Jacob to live there just like that. He wants to be able to pay him, compensate him for being there. What do you want your wages to be? So, to introduce the wage that Jacob wants, verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Older and younger. Why are we told about older and younger? Because later, Laban's going to use this as an excuse. An an excuse to trick or deceive Jacob. And 17, and Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Leah's eyes being weak means basically she was ugly and Rachel was beautiful. And normally it's harder to marry off an ugly daughter than a beautiful daughter, normally speaking. It's harder to do that. And so Rachel was beautiful of form and face in both ways. Now, when Scripture says this, and when Scripture says in a moment, that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, it's not necessarily saying that it's a virtue to be ugly, so don't take care of yourself as men or women. It's not implying that. Nor is it saying that if there's beauty, physical beauty, that in and of itself, that is a reason, a good cause to marry. Whether you're marrying a woman who's beautiful or a handsome man, in whatever direction we're going. It doesn't necessarily mean that. For example, do you remember King Saul? King Saul was handsome, was he not? And God chose him to be the first king of Israel. 
uh, this is all 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 9, and then 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel was told to anoint David among the sons of Jesse, he saw Eliab, the firstborn, and that he was handsome. And Samuel concluded, well, he's going to be the one. And God said, no, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, but that doesn't imply that God didn't mean I'm going to choose an ugly man, an ugly, godly man to be your king. Because later in 1 Samuel, we get to verses 11 to 14 in there, it calls David handsome and ruddy. So David, the one that God did choose, was not only godly, but he was also handsome. You see my point? We can take the handsomeness or the beauty in the wrong way, and we can also take ugliness in the wrong way. In both cases, there should be godliness, right? But we should not consider ugliness a virtue, and we should not consider beauty to be such a virtue that you underestimate or devalue godliness. Both have their place. And if God creates people to be beautiful or ugly, that's the way God created them. But we must look beyond that and look to their person and their character. Verse 18. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. Now, we do know from chapter 30, verse 24, she knows the Lord, or she trusts in him. May the Lord give me another son. We do know that. But it looks like, at first sight, perhaps, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel because of her beauty. However, it was not only her beauty, because he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Seven years. Seven years wages, meaning a, a dowry or a bride price, to be able to marry Rachel. Seven years. Who thinks of seven years wages? Think about that in modern terms. Seven years of wages. For example, in this period of time, let's just use a round number. One shekel of silver was a wage for a month. A, a shekel of silver, just a small piece of silver. One shekel at this period of time was the wage of a month, the average wage for one month. Now, if we're dealing with one shekel of silver, that would be 84 shekels of silver that he would be earning to be able to marry Rachel. 84 shekels. And in, Gen uh, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22, 26, uh, 28 and 29, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 28 and 29, when a man violated a woman, if the father was willing to marry off his daughter to that man, that man had to pay 50 shekels of silver to the father. 50. So here, he's willing to give 84 shekels and seven years earning to pay for Rachel. So that's one indication of Jacob's true heart and diligence. He doesn't say, well, after a year or after six months, let me marry your daughter. Correct? He doesn't say that. Furthermore, verses 19 and 20, and Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. 
He understands Jacob's character. He's more reliable, more trustworthy, more virtuous, has godliness in him compared to the other men in his locality. And you are a relative, so all the better. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And here it is. And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. A few days because of his love for her. That is a very ironic statement, is it not? If, someone, if a man wanted to marry a woman, he, is, he would be begging to marry her usually as soon as possible, right? But he loved her so much, he was willing to work hard, wait patiently, practice self-control, do what was necessary to pay the father, the bride price, the dowry, without complaining and grumbling, and he was so happy about it, so joyful about it, they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. When there is lust, people, uh, men don't look at it that way. Yeah. But when there is true love, men would look at it that way. That's the kind of patience he had. Furthermore, when Jacob arrived here, he was about 70 years old, which statistic and calculation we can discuss in the next hour. But he was about 70 years old. And by the time he married, he was about 77 years old because he had to wait seven years, right? He had to wait seven years. So he was 70 years old and unmarried, waited a long time already in his life. Now he's waiting seven more years. This is the kind of virtue Jacob has. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.